We know the difficulties facing health and social care providers around the country when it comes to workforce and rotors, which is why we're proud to have Series 4 of our podcast sponsored by Florence. Florence connects care professionals with shifts across the healthcare sector. Their app lets you fill shifts instantly at great rates, so you can focus on providing outstanding care. All the links to Florence and their socials are going to be in each episode description of this podcast series, so why not go and check them out? Hello and welcome to The Caring View, the online health and social care platform for everyone living and working in social care. You're listening to us on our podcast today, and this is the last episode of Series 4, all around membership organisations and why people in social care really need to invest in their learning and in their growth. As always, you can find everything on www.thecaringview.co.uk. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on all of our socials, and obviously follow us on Spotify. Uh, Today, I'm joined by my ever-fabulous co-host, Mark Top. Say hello, Mark. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. And we're also um, really overjoyed to be in the pleasurable company of uh, Professor Martin Green of Care England. Hello, Martin. Hello, Adam. Hi, Mark. Now, Martin, I will never do you justice by giving an introduction. So for our listeners who have been living under a rock and don't know who you are, could you just give us an idea of who you are and what Care England's about? Yes, certainly. Um, I'm Martin Green and I'm the Chief Executive of Care England and we're a representative body for care providers. Our members deliver services to older people, to people with learning disabilities. We also have some brain injury units and some mental health services in membership. They cross both charity and also private sector organisations. So I think we have a fairly good grasp of what's going on in social care and how the agenda is having an impact on providers. We are recognised as being for large corporates, but we also have a significant number of smaller providers. About 60% of our membership are smaller providers. Um, So we do see how it impacts both the small and the large organisations, the charities, as well as the commercial organisations too. Thank you very much. So before we dive into the conversation, we'd like to find out a bit more about the person that we're speaking to. So are you able just to give us a brief history kind of your career up until Care England? Yes, certainly, Mark. I mean, my career has been predominantly in the voluntary sector. I started my life in Newcastle University, where I did a a sociology and social research as my degree. And I then went into my first job, which was with Gingerbread, a single parents charity. And um, I was with uh, Gingerbread in Newcastle for a while. And then I went to be a policy officer at Age Concern Greenwich and then subsequently chief executive. From there, I became chief executive at Age Concern Wandsworth and at Age Concern Lambeth. And I was also a trustee of Age Concern England. So I've really had a majority of my career in older people's issues. I had some time in Uganda where I worked uh, on HIV AIDS programmes and disability programmes. And that was really interesting for me. And when I returned from Uganda, I then became involved in the National AIDS Trust and I was one of their trustees and now I'm a National AIDS Trust champion. And I think uh, my career has been predominantly in the voluntary sector. But one of the things that's taught me is that actually, whether it's voluntary or whether it's private, The important thing is about the services we deliver to the people we support. And I think, uh, you know, I have a sector neutral approach. I don't believe that charities are better than commercial organisations. I think we all face the same challenges 
and we all have to work together to navigate our way through them and to also be very positive about the impact care has on people's lives, not only the people we support, but also their families and loved ones. I think it's really interesting. I mean, first off, I didn't know you uh, were so heavily involved in, in HIV and AIDS charities. It's something close to my heart. I think it's a fantastic um, sort of path to be taken with charity work. There's a lot that needs to be done. Still a lot of stigma around HIV and AIDS, which I think we're doing okay with eradicating in this country. But it's it's one of those that will be with us for gosh knows how long. It's It's horrific. So kudos to you on that. And I also think it's refreshing to hear you mention about um, charities not being better than, you know, for-profit organisations. There's definitely that mindset that a, a not-for-profit sort of supersedes or trumps a, a profit organisation, which isn't the case. And you're right, we need to have that more integral sort of working. So I'm going to ask, why Care England? What With, with all of this sort of back work that you've done and everything that you've achieved, why, why take over and, and sort of be the lead on Care England? Well, I had for a long time, as you know, worked with older people. And uh, one of the things that I was very anxious to do was to look at how we made sure that older people got good services, particularly when they became frail. I also was conscious that the social care sector was very much the poor relation to the NHS. But when I was seeing people in my roles, both at Age Concern and indeed my roles at Gingerbread and through the work with HIV, what I was seeing were people who were having their lives transformed by social care as well as by health. And it was quite interesting to see that health did the immediate interventions where you could have a beginning and an end. But it was social care that supported people to live well. And what I also saw, and I have seen over a long career, is how the quality of social care is continuing to improve. And it's really about enabling people to live well. And I think we don't champion that enough. What we tend to do is we talk about the deficits and why people need social care. We don't talk about the resources people have, the skills they have, and how social care enables them to use those to have a good life. And you know, when people talk about services, they often talk about having good services. Well, I think we need to move the agenda on. We need to be talking about people having good lives and services are the things that underpin that. And sorry, just before Mark comes in, just while you were talking then, it always reminds me of, of something that I'm quite passionate about. And people are born into the health service. You know, as soon as you're born, you have that relationship with the NHS, you have that relationship with our health partners and we happen upon social care. We don't seem to understand that actually... Social care is there at the exact same time because the people who are giving birth are going to need social support. They're going to need, you know, all of that sort of multidisciplinary approach. And yet we are still that afterthought. Actually, we're born into health and social care. So really interesting to, to, to hear that. Sorry, Mark, I interrupted you there. No, no need to apologise. I think it's great, Martin, listening to you there about actually how we're going to move that conversation forward because I think that's the only way we're going to shape and evolve the sector because obviously what we're doing now isn't working, you know, in the grand scheme of things, especially if we can drive that forward and, you know, place more of an emphasis on the people that are accessing the services. So tell us more about Care England. What are the benefits for members and what do you do there? 
Well, I think one of the things that we have to do is to deliver some very clear, tangible and pretty immediate benefits to people. So that is why we have a range of things which Care England members can draw down on, which will help them with their bottom line. So we have, for example, in response to the energy crisis, we got together to develop an energy tariff for care so that we could use the uh, buying power of a lot of care providers to reduce the costs of energy, which are now astronomical. And of course, this is a very energy uh, intensive sector. We also have a range of procurement and, and partnerships whereby people can get good quality goods and services at reduced price through their membership of Care England. And when I thought about the membership of this organisation, I had two objectives in mind. Yes, there were the big operational things we wanted to do on the policy side, but there were also a range of big immediate things that were confronting care providers. And I have to say over the years, this has got worse. It's about real severe cost pressures and anything that we as a representative body can do to make sure people can get the best value for their money, then that is a really big foundation on which we can build our membership. Then, of course, we want to go into the policy agenda. We want to make sure that there is a really clear vision for social care so that everybody understands it and the impact it makes. We're also clear that we want to remind local economies that social care is probably in some areas the biggest part of that local economy. So if you look at the NHS, we employ more people. Yeah. Those people live locally. They spend in local shops. There are really important parts of the local economy. And too often the debate in social care is about what the government puts in. But I want to shift the dial again to what the community gets out of social care. And it is significant. It's significant in terms of the impact on people's lives. It's significant in terms of the economic support and impact it has in local areas. So we talk a lot about policy. And the reason we do that as well is because if we change policy for the better, we change it for everybody. So we have a, a, a direction of travel, which is how do we help our members? But we have another direction of travel is how do we create an environment in which care is respected and able to thrive? No, absolutely. And I had a follow-up question when you mentioned around policy agenda, and I'm pleased you kind of elaborated slightly there, because during the podcast, we've obviously spoken to some of the other membership organisations, and whilst they've informed um, Department of Health and Social Care and some of the, you know, the politicians of its pieces, none of them have kind of moved into the policy agenda kind of route. So it's interesting to hear that Care England are moving kind of towards that. Are you able to tell us more and how you kind of use the members' experiences and the voices to kind of drive that agenda? Well, one of the things we've started to do far more of is to use people's direct experience to drive the agenda at both a local as well as a national level. And we're at a point now with the arrival of integrated care systems where the system is a bit up for grabs. Now, one of the challenges is that social care has a national profile and a national government overseeing it but it is predominantly delivered at a local level by local government. So we have to make sure that in terms of the policy agenda, we've got the big national bits that we need to be putting forward. But we've also got to engage with local areas and we've got to start making this about what local people want and think. 
And we've used our membership, I think, more effectively of late to give their stories and their voices to local politicians. Because if somebody says something nationally, that's all well and good. But if Mrs. Jones, who's in the constituency of Councillor Smith, says, this is my experience and this is what you can do to improve it, it makes it much more tangible. So we try to work our policy agenda at both a national and also a local level. And I also want to say we do know that we have got an opportunity with the arrival of integrated care systems, but we shouldn't underestimate how difficult it's going to be because it's all about the culture in those organisations. Now, I am so old, I can remember joint appointments, co-terminosity, I can remember PCTs, I can remember health and wellbeing boards, now I've got CCGs and now we've got IPSs. Well, none of those predecessor organisations delivered the quantum change we needed. So what we've got to do is apply ourselves now to how we break not the structure, but the culture, because it's culture that eats strategy for breakfast. And I do think we as an organisation need to be really clear about a culture change programme, as well as looking at these new structures. I mean, you're so true. And, you know, even down to the basics, I'm, you know, I sit in a number of ICB meetings or local health meetings as part of my role and all my other bits of work that I do. And even to the point of the language that is used in these meetings ostracizes anyone that is not used to working in health. Everything's acronyms. Everything's quite clinical. Everything's quite, you know, um, acerbic. It's just not right. And it's trying to change that sort of language culture from from the basics to actually being inclusive that other people can understand otherwise half the meetings going up going can you just explain what you mean there and can you explain what you mean there and people then get fed up and disengage and they don't get involved and it's it's quite difficult and it's a it's a mean ask and we're a year almost into the icbs now and i'm personally yet to see anything majorly transformative happen through them um, i don't know whether you've seen anything no, I, I agree. I mean, there are one or two that I feel are making a difference. I'm particularly interested in the work that's going on in Surrey, uh, led by people like Ian Smith, but also by Bex from the Surrey Care Association, who's done a fantastic work getting the voices of social care into uh, these debates. But I think, you see, for me, what we need to do is shift the conversation and we need to take it away from being about organizations and processes and start thinking about people and outcomes and one of the things that i want to do before i go into any more meetings where they constantly talk about the process i would like to start with let's define our unified integrated measures of success let's start with the person and work backwards and when we talk about integration the only way you know whether a service is integrated and whether it's meeting people's needs is to ask somebody who is the recipient of the service. If a person tells you, yes, I had what I needed at the right time in the right way, that it was preventative rather than always dealing with me after the crisis, then I'll know we're moving towards an integrated system. But there has not been enough focus on the measures of success in my view. Everyone's so afraid of using the word person. You know, they're afraid of using the word people. I mean, the, the two reports that I published, the people plans, you know, we've, we've got two of them out there now. And the, the whole thing is, it's about people. Social care is about people. And people still don't get that. I find it, I find it really odd. All right, moving back on to, to Care England and your members, how do you communicate with your members then? So if, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to join Care England, what can I expect? How am I going to get 
communicated with? How am I going to find out all the good stuff that's going on? Well, we have five um, uh, daily policy bulletins a week. So we're in contact with our members five days a week. During COVID, we were in contact with them seven days a week to make sure that they were fully up to speed with everything that was coming out of the department and other parts of the system. We also have a range of bulletins that go out monthly, so Care Agenda, which keeps people informed of what's going on. We, I hope, use our website fairly effectively. We also have things like uh, groups and interest groups, so we're trying to harvest what people's experiences are on the ground. So this can inform both our policy agenda and also some of the things that we might want to do operationally so that we're always in touch with our members. So, for example, we have a learning disability group. We have an HR group. We have a group that's focused on ICSs so that we can be really much more in touch with issues on the ground and respond to them effectively. We, of course, also have a range of different events. Usually uh, now they're virtual events. But we do have a major conference every year, and we just had one in March, which was a real opportunity to come into contact with our members, to listen to their views and opinions, to enable them to network with each other, to give some clear messages to government, because we did have the minister there, and we had some also the chief inspector from the regulator, and again, getting messages to the regulator. So we try and find as many ways possible as having a dialogue with our members so that when we come out with a policy position, it is not our policy position, but it is one formed by our membership. No, and I think that's crucial, isn't it? That it's formed of the people that are working kind of on those front line. You spoke there about um, obviously your annual conference. How have you found that since COVID? So we spoke to obviously Nadra, Vic, Jane um, earlier on in this series around some of them were doing online events some have just started coming back into person and obviously you've just spoken there about doing a large one in um obviously a couple of months ago how did you find that was it the same kind of turnout as you had pre-pandemic was it better or what was the atmosphere kind of like well it was an amazing turnout ironically it was on the day of a train strike and um, also the day after a troop strike so tubes weren't getting back weren't getting back to normal till about nine o'clock and we deliberated on whether or not we should cancel the event. But my view was, even if we'd had lower turnout, I think it was important for, for people to come together. Now, in uh, you know the event happened, and it actually had a really good turnout. And in fact, we've received a lot of positive feedback. And some members saying it was better than some of the conferences we'd had pre-lockdown. The other issue was that we did have a virtual conference uh, in the first year of lockdown. Um, and it was a disaster for technical reasons rather than anything else. And so this has given me a bit of a nervous twitch on uh, on uh, sort of these sorts of big staged events. Um, but, but, you know, members did tell me they really enjoyed being able to come together. And I do think that the conference is a really useful opportunity for people to not only hear what government or regulator thinks, but also to talk to one another and to draw mutual support on issues that are really difficult and contentious. And I think that the networking that happens at conferences is equally as important as the staged performances from people who may come from government or the regulator or indeed other parts of the system. 
There's definitely. Oh, go on, Adam. No, no, no. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say there's definitely something about an in-person event, isn't there, that you just don't get from sitting behind a screen. What were you going to say, Adam? Yeah, no, I was going to agree with you. I think if anything, the you know the pandemic's taught us anything. It's how much we value our time and how much we value our resources. And I think post-pandemic, everyone sort of changed their outlook now, and it's kind of. What am I going to get from this? Is it going to be beneficial? Should I go? And the organizers are very much focusing on how do we make sure that people's time is not wasted? So I think most events that I've been to post-pandemic have seen some sort of improvement. And I think that's through self-reflective learning. But there is something about that network. And in social care, with us being fragmented, with us being so disparate, however you want to refer to us, that networking is essential because it gets us to know other people and what other people are doing and, you know, learning from what else um, everyone's, you know, doing. How can we apply that in our own organisations? Yeah. So, I mean, I, sorry. I agree, Adam. No, I agree, Adam. And uh, one of the things that we did with our conference, we have uh, the big plenaries with the minister and the chief inspector and others, but the whole of the afternoon is devoted to workshops which are interactive and where members talk to each other about issues, listen to the voices of experts who can give them help and support. So I wanted people to be able to say, yes, I came away understanding what the big policy issues were, but I also came away with some really tangible things that can help me deliver care on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is the, the sort of approach that we try to take with our, our events. Yeah, no, I mean, it's spot on. And it's definitely what we're finding is the caring view um, that people are wanting. Mark, I'm presuming your managers and your services are feeling the same. My members at the Institute are feeling the same. It's those takeaway points. Inform me, but give me something that I can take away and use as well. So with you saying that your first uh, uh, sort of conference during lockdown was virtual and a technical disaster, shall we say, what role does technology play within um, Care England and how important is the advancement of technology for the services you provide to your members? And just as a sort of follow on to that, how important do your members find technology in the delivery of social care now? Well, I think technology is absolutely vital. And one of the things that we've got to do is start working smarter, not harder. And we've got workforce crisis and I think technology can be really helpful in that. Now we have gone through a process at Care England where we are revising systems so we've done an overhaul of our website we're just about to introduce a new um, system whereby we can get much more clear information from our members and use that information more effectively. On a wider scale, there is a desperate need for the care sector to embrace technology, and it was quite slow coming to the party. Now, I realise that's because we're a person-centred sector, but actually there's a lot of technology out there that's really important. The care planning um, issue, everybody now will need to be on electronic care planning into the future. <clears throat> but also, you know, I'm really interested in what role um, artificial intelligence can play, what role robotics can play. So a good example, I launched with um, Amazon recently an Alexa for care homes. Now, what was great about that was I was able to talk to people who had done the, the process of trialing it. What was the most powerful thing was when I talked to people who use services. So a lady told me because of her severe arthritis, she often dropped her remote control. And she said, I then find myself pushing a buzzer, waiting for somebody to come. Then, of course, the program's half over. She said, now I just say, Alexa, play BBC Two, and it comes on. I then talked to the care home managers, 
who told me that when members of the community wanted something like a cup of tea, they just said, Alexa, I want a cup of tea. That message was sent straight to the catering team who were able to respond immediately. In the past, it would normally be the care team that came and then there would be another break in the chain. Similarly, a really great initiative that I saw were people who were using Fitbits. So a man I saw had been into hospital five times with UTIs, urinary tract infections, in the space of four months. He then had a small, very cheap Fitbit, which identified slight changes in temperature and body uh, movement were the preludes to a UTI. And he then had proactive medicine and he never went to hospital for the last 11 months of his life. That was great for him. That was great for the system. So we have got to start embracing technology. And the reason we need to do it is it improves the lives of the people that we are looking after, but it also improves the efficiency of the organizations that we're in. And we have got to get um, much more efficiency and productivity into our sector, as well as uh, better outcomes for people who use services. And I think technology can be an absolute central part of delivering on both those fronts. I mean, just before I bring Mark in for the next question, I must apologise for everyone listening. If you've now got BBC Radio 2 playing out overall, Alexa, it's one of those, isn't it? I dread them being on TV in case it triggers your device. Just before, sorry, Mark, I bring you in. I think the, the, the technologies you've spoken about there, I think what's important to know is they're not new. They're not developed specifically for social care. They exist. And we need to be using more of the stuff that already exists. It reduces the actual outgoing cost because R&R is not required. They don't need to be developed. They don't need to be built. They're there and relatively cheap because they're there for home consumption. You know, you compare that to some of the social care initiatives out there and the social care design stuff is incredibly expensive. Compared to what, 40, 50 quid for an uh, Amazon Echo Alexa? It's incredible. Amazon, uh, Apple Watches, they've got built-in full sensors now. You yeah, know, exactly. All that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Adam. And what we do is we tend to try and think everything has to be bespoke. Actually, that, that proves to us we should start by saying, what do we want to achieve? And then work backwards from there. And, and the start point is, can we do it quickly, easily and cheaply? without going to something new. And in many cases, yes, we can. Yeah, and I mean, sorry again, Mark, I'm interested. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Just, just to follow on that, it is. And it also adds to that sort of stigma around people who use care. Oh, no, you can't use the stuff we use. You need your own special stuff to use because you won't know how to use the stuff we've got. Actually, that's wrong. Let's just get people involved because as much as we need to get organizations and, and, and service providers involved, general people need to get more embracive of technology you know i was in um i told you about it mark the other day i was in um, a supermarket and the person in front of me couldn't grasp contactless pay couldn't understand contactless pay and the chip and pin wasn't working and it's something as simple as that as paying for your groceries and not understanding how to do it we need to invest more in supporting our generations into knowing about technology i'm going to zip it mark i promise no, no, you're okay. It's all good. It's all good conversation. And I think just adding on kind of the, the technology angle, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it pans out because obviously Amazon, Apple, Samsung have all said that actually they want to gear their their pro products to the older market. And obviously I, I'm, I'm an Apple user, you know, we've got the medication reminders on the phone, you know, Adam, like you said, the false detector on the watch, you know, Samsung that obviously rolling that out. But I think even things like 
AI is starting to roll out on our devices. So actually, these organizations that are charging through the roof, and I think we had a conversation, didn't we, Adam, the other day about one that was, you know, never going to be in the price range for a small or medium-sized provider. Actually, they're going to be able to do this from their handsets for free. Um, I think one of the things that's quite often, you know, the biggest thing they have is voice to text. Well, that's just standard now across all platforms. That, that's nothing special anymore. So I think, and I do worry that there's going to be somebody that comes in with all of this latest tech and it's just going to undercut all the products that we've got kind of in the social care market. And they'll have it all singing and dancing and everybody's going to be like, wow, this is amazing. I mean, yeah, kind of no, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that uh, we should really try and do is try and develop a situation where we can access things easily and cheaply. And you know, what's really interesting, you talk about voice activated technology. Well, it's revolutionized my life. I have been voice typing for about the last 12 years and I do all my emails, all my reports, all my uh, articles, they're all voice typed. I talk to my car, I tell it to change the, uh, you know, the air conditioning. I tell it to, to pull down the window. I do all that stuff and it's really easy. And I think we've just got to get to stuff that is easy and simple, but makes a difference. And those are the criteria and, and, and cheap. And, you know, one of the things I think is there will be people who come in with apps and then they make all this technology that's really expensive obsolete. Well, my view is so be it. That's great. If that delivers something easy and cheap for the consumer, well, then we're all happy. Yeah, and controversially, I mean, I'm all for innovation. I'm all for people getting jobs. I'm all for creating new stuff. I do worry there's a there is there is something around innovative startups who go, oh, social care, huge pot of money. Let's go and develop some tech. Let's go get loads of money for it. And actually, the majority of the stuff never delivers. It never fully follows through. And in fact, I do feel like a lot of the funding now needs to go into, let's have a look at what already exists. How do we use that? Because you'd get a lot more done for the amount of money that's currently being spent in, in social tech and in digital tech. Sorry, Mark, I know that question of mine lasted longer than, than possible. Well, no, no, that's okay. I think just finally, just touch on, I think I also worry that the older generation that we're looking at after now doesn't have the experience of tech, but the generations that are coming through that require care now have that experience. If they're used to Apple and Samsung and all these other products that already do these amazing things, they're not going to want to pay for it either because they're going to realize, actually, I used to do that on my iPad or I used to do that on my phone or whatever it was. So. I agree. Back to the questions that we had, Martin. Um, back to kind of membership um, and obviously don't know whether you have targets or not in terms of membership membership numbers for your organization each year. What have been the biggest challenges that you faced in attracting new members and retaining them? Or do you not have a problem with that? Well, I think inevitably in a sector that is really strapped for cash, membership has to prove its worth. And what we have to do is to make sure that when finance directors or chief executives are making decisions about whether or not they have Care England membership, they need to be able to say the benefits of this membership are so that there's something very tangible there. So what we try to do is we sell the benefits of membership so that people will know that they're getting something tangible for being part of Care England. We're quite lucky that we do have good levels of membership. And uh, also, interestingly, during COVID, we picked up a lot of new members and we're continuing to pick members up. Of course, the other thing that often happens, and we see it more and more, is that as there is a shakedown in the sector, and we saw it during the last crash, you then find that people either sell their portfolios or close 
particular parts of their businesses. So that's always a challenge, and particularly when you have some large corporates. So, for example, we used to have Southern Cross in membership, and then suddenly one day that didn't exist. And then that creates a hole in your membership. But you just have to go out there and say, right, we're going to make sure that we make ourselves attractive to, to new members. Um, and we've thus far done that. But it is something that we have to be constantly reminding ourselves of, which is that in a cash-strapped sector, you have to prove your worth. And that's something that we at Care England are really determined that we want to do. We want people to be members because they get something from us, not for the joy of being members. And I suppose it's something about understanding what people actually want as well. You know, there's no point in having, say, oh, you're, you're a member, so you get, I don't know, free stationery. I know that would probably actually be really, really good. But them go, actually, I don't want free stationery because I'm a digital now. So I suppose it's understanding what they need and what they want. So with that, and obviously, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, making sure that membership is, is worth it for people and showcasing that. How do you measure the impact of Care England, in, in, not just on your members, but the wider industry? So do you have any sort of measures that you go, actually, yes, the impact we've done on this is, is brilliant and that's great? Yeah, we do. We have impact in terms of what we achieve, but also in any uh, role where you're lobbying, sometimes the impacts are what you stop happening. So when you have those conversations with government because they've had a stupid idea that will be really detrimental to the sector. Who? The government? I, a stupid idea, Martin? <laughs> yeah, I, know, I know that sounds incredible, Adam, but it does happen. So I think we, we try and work on the basis of um, looking not only at the impacts we have. Uh, there is a temptation and we try to resist it. We, we try to resist looking at our outputs and try to focus on our outcomes. And again, you know, sometimes it's very seductive. So you can see how many times you've been mentioned in the media, for example, and that gives you a warm glow. But then what we do is we say to ourselves, well, what has been the impact of that on the sector? How has that helped our members? Has that raised the profile of social care in that area or in that locality? Have we made uh, the ability to get some clear messages across? So, you know, it's very interesting. Um, I appeared one morning on um, the Today programme and I then went into a studio and I was patched in to eight local radio stations. And the impact and the reach of those eight local radio stations was one and a half times more than the Today programme. And so we need to remind ourselves that we need to be having our impacts on particularly the media at levels that are not only national, but they're local. And I think also one of the things we've tried to do with our members is to give them some really clear resources that help them engage with local media. One of the things you notice about local media is they will pick up a good news story, whereas national media will never pick up a good news story. So um, often our national media is about either trying to clarify a position or defending something when it's happened. Whereas our local media can be about the positive stories around the impact care has. And so I really urge care providers as well to engage with their local media. You know, local radio is a really good example of this. They need to fill sometimes 24 hours with local events and news. And what greater thing could there be than somebody from a care service talking about the impact that it's had on their lives? So I think, you know, we need to be giving members the capacity and the support to be able to do some of that work as well. 
It's so true. Mark and I, I mean, Mark and I had plenty of experience of doing the media during the pandemic. And, you know, we'd speak to providers and go, oh, I was on uh, the radio, but it was just like, I don't know, Radio Lancashire. And I was like, no, it wasn't just Radio Lancashire. That is to the whole of Lancashire. And there's so many people that listen to that, that you can change mindsets within that local area. Getting your voice on a platform like that is incredible, no matter the reach. It's, it's brilliant. But like you say, local better positive stories that's why we created the caring view because we were fed up of going on to national tv having an argy bargy with piers morgan and not having the ability to showcase what social care is about so we exactly. just kind of went you know what stuff it let's create the caring view and have that platform for everyone yeah and, and great credit to you both for doing that because these are exactly the things we need to do but as a sector we need to also make it all our responsibility to champion social care. And one of the things that I, I really want to do is to get everybody who works in social care to be an ambassador for it. And it is an old cliche, but you can go to a party and somebody can talk to you about 10 minutes, how wonderful their work in the NHS is. And then somebody will say, well, I'm just a care worker. Well, actually, you're making a bigger contribution, as big as a contribution as somebody in the NHS. And we need to be really clear about that. But I think it's partly as well about giving our colleagues a pride in themselves and what they do and also acknowledging for them that they're making such a difference to people's lives. And that is so powerful when people realise the impact they're having. But of course, care workers are often such caring, wonderful people that they don't want to blow their own trumpet. Uh, and, and I think we should remind them that they're doing amazing work and we're here to blow the trumpet, but they should also blow the trumpet occasionally. No, absolutely. And funny you say that because I was reading a blog this morning um, written by Paula Cashmore. And she said, actually, you know, when people stop and ask what she does, she says she works in social care and she gets either somebody that looks like they don't know what to say back or somebody that fully engages with it. But actually, we should all be proud to say that we work in social care, that we prop up the NHS. And, you know, actually, it's an amazing sector with amazing career pathways. Just touching on around the media, I actually think that the local media is better informed. I feel like when you have that conversation, they know what they're talking about as well. And I did find that kind of the national media, Adam, you touched on it there, it seems to be just one opinion versus the complete opposite opinion. It's almost like... They're debating it for likes and the replays and bits and, and they don't have a clue. I no, had GB News the other week, and I'm not even joking. It was like, so the workforce crisis in social care is it because we need to get more people working with the elderly? And I was like, can I just say, social care is not about elderly people. Social care is about everyone. You go on, and it's like, oh, our health minister. You mean our health and social care minister? Use the terminology. No, exactly, and and I think part of the problem is that. Um, People don't have an understanding of social care, but also the national media has turned into a Punch and Judy show. And one of the um, one of the things when you go on, I, what, what I'm really interested in, whenever I go on to the Today programme in the morning and I you know, challenge anybody who's listening to this, when there is the introduction to an item, it is always set up in an adversarial way with a stream of adjectives. It's either a crisis or a scandal. And the, the, the whole of the introduction frames a conversation. Then they get two people who are coming from polar opposite positions and it becomes the sort of 21st century uh, equivalent of the bear bait where <clears throat> the person who is doing the interviewing is then there to create conflict, not to create 
more knowledge and understanding. Uh, and I do think it's particularly reprehensible that a public service broadcaster with £3.7 billion of taxpayers' money in it behaves in this way. And the notion that somehow it's a proper broadcaster, when you see the way it behaves and when you see the way it sets up adversarial positions, you begin to realise actually all they're interested in is conflict. They want to shed heat and not light on any issue. I think, yeah, I think it all started, didn't it, with Katie Hopkins and then obviously Piers. I mean, I can't remember what, oh, talk radio. My wife and I love listening oh. to our long cart journeys because it's just, com it's comedian like stuff, but how they get away with it. But like you said, Martin, why the BBC are doing that, you know, they've kind of gone over from that news outlet and crossed out over into that social media likes, retweeting, resharing content. But back to Care England, looking at your website, I must say, I do love the new colours. Looks good. Yeah. Um, it's clear that you collaborate in partnership with a lot of organisations. What benefits have you seen from this for your members and also for Care England and your growth? Well, I mean, I think collaboration has to be the way forward. And we need to remind ourselves that actually we're all working for the same outcome and for the same goal. There may be things that differentiate us, but there are also so much that unites us. And when we can work together, we hopefully are stronger and we can have a clearer voice. <clears throat> Though I do get a little bit irritated when government ministers say things to me like, oh, there are too many organizations in the care sector. I always say to them, there might be a thousand organizations, but what you need to know is they're all giving you one message and you're not listening to it. The issue is about the clarity of the message and the consistency of the message. And certainly all the representative bodies and also pretty much all the providers are really clear about what they want to achieve. And I have to say my challenge to government is I'd really be pleased if they could get people who are supposed to sit between each other at the next desk in various departments to talk to one another. But it is a rather ridiculous notion that somehow you can't have lots of different organisations. I think that's quite healthy. And interestingly, um, many years ago, I was involved as a, a trustee at Age Concern England when we merged with Help the Aged. And our view was that one voice would be stronger. And actually, I don't think it has been. I think sometimes more voices, but amplifying the same message can be a really powerful way of getting the message across. It's really interesting to you say that because there are varying views on this, isn't there? Is, do we all have the same thing and say it together? Do we all have the same thing and say it separately? Um, I don't think social care has really been in the public hearts and eyes long enough to tell which one works best. But to say that there's too many of us doing it is is bonkers. And it's, you know, the Caring View came up with the, the Green Heart alongside um, Championing Social Care and, and IHSCM. And the whole point of that was to basically look, there's tons of us. Just look how amazing it is to see how many green hearts there are on social media. Something so simple is that, but it just unites everyone together with that same common goal. So you no longer go to a party and go, I'm a care home manager, and the response is, oh, I'm sorry. It's actually, no, this is amazing. Wow, you do such a great job. It's fantastic. Oh, if we could only figure out how to fix it all, Martin. Well, I think, I think it seems to me that if we just formed the cabinet, we could reach a solution to everything. I do often say this, though, and I've, I've joked with Damien Green and other people in the past about this and gone, look, you have these people as your figureheads. Fine. If you want to have someone who's gone to Oxford and whatever and born with a silver spoon in the mouth and you want them as your figurehead, brilliant. Just have a consortium of people who know what actually is going on behind them to sit behind, make those decisions, you know, have a fully informed, holistic view and approach to it. You might get stuff done, but they don't. 
mm-hmm. and they just chip people around left, right, and musical chairs over in that magical building in London, isn't it? Right. So, with your voice um, for your large providers and your larger organisations um, within the local authorities, and obviously you're saying that your membership um, is made up around 60% of, of, of smaller organisations as well, which is great to hear, you know, the sector's 80%, 75%, 80% of your SMEs. How important is it for you and your organisation to be able to have this voice, to be able to go in and champion all of this now? Well, I think it's really important because nobody will be able to say they didn't have the information. And often, you know, people hide behind the fact if you're making a decision as a local authority, oh, nobody told me this. Well, now there is no hiding place. And interestingly, since we had the cost of care exercise, which was initiated by the government, we have got no hiding place for any local authority or indeed any government to say we don't know what social care costs <coughs> because we now do have a benchmark. What's really outrageous is that they set in train a process to try and identify the true costs of care. And then they seem to think that that's the end of the story. My view is when you set in train a process, you have to respond to it. And we have seen local authorities who are not responding to the significant increases in costs that we have uh, faced. So not only are there the issues around the living wage, and I have to say, my view is I want to see care workers on a lot more than the living wage. I think this is a very skilled and very challenging role, and it should be properly rewarded with proper career and pay structures, and they should be aligned to the NHS. But now we've got the data, the government must respond to that data. Now, interestingly, I don't know if you saw what the Australian government had done. And in fact, I think it's in today's budget. They're going to be announcing 11.3 billion Australian dollars to enhance the workforce. Now, this is on a workforce of 250,000 people, and it will give an increase of about 140 Um, dollars a week to baseline care workers and domestic staff and it will increase the salaries of nurses in care by about 194 dollars a week and this is a commitment that's been made by their government because they feel it's a really important uh, foundation stone of a civilized society when we have got to see a similar position here we now know through the data sets what we need in social care. Now what we need to have is a response from government. And you know, one of the other things that's quite sad about this, there is no political party with clean hands on this. You know, every prime minister since Tony Blair has promised reform. We've had Labour prime ministers, we've had coalition prime ministers, we've had Liberal Democrat ministers, we've had Labour ministers and Conservative ministers, and all of them have talked the talk and none of them have delivered a long-term and sustainable solution. And as we go into the next um, election, I really hope that our sector will start being more vocal at a local level so that people will start telling MPs on the hustings this is something they want to see the government finally sort out. It's strange, isn't it? Because they must have someone within their family that uses social care. I find it interesting, the whole Australian that you were talking about, because my brother lives there, some of my family do, and they were messaging me saying, oh, have you heard about Australia? I was like, I have no clue what you're on about. And they were saying that originally they were campaigning for 25%, settled on 15 But it was through the campaign, and actually what we need to be now doing is actually 
who was it that did this campaign and how did they get off that off the ground and how can we then emulate that into the UK? Because everything that we seem to be doing isn't working in terms of, you know, you know, to give our, our frontline staff the, the wage that like you said, Martin, that they truly deserve. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I, I'm certainly going to delve into what Australia did because I want to see whether or not there's a template that we can use. But of course, one of the other challenges we face is the NHS. And the NHS has become um, an end in itself. So you cannot challenge the NHS. It swallows up huge amounts of money, quite clearly on some levels, particularly for people with long-term conditions. It's not delivering. And yet you can't have a reasonable conversation about how you reapportion money to make sure that people are supported and don't go into crisis. And I, I, I sometimes am bemused by the fact that we tell ourselves we have a health service because actually we have a sick service. And the only way you get access to it is when you have a crisis. And we've got to move from a crisis orientated service into one that supports people to live well and minimizes their potential to go into crisis. It's a lifelong journey. We need a lifelong plan. We need to be able to, to go with this every single day, even if it's just an app that we log into constantly, just logging our daily vitals, you know, something similar, like you say, to stop that sort of commissioning at crisis, to stop that treatment at crisis, that access at crisis, all of that needs to change. And I know people will be sitting here going, oh, but that means more people using the services is going to get even more clogged up. Well, no, because the long-term illnesses will reduce, the long-term problems will reduce, those backups will reduce. Simple return on investment logic. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with technology because the NHS has failed to do that within their own app, but yet people are paying apps <laughs> to do that for them where you can update all those vital stats and you know get into a new routine by uploading your content, send your reminders. They're things that the NHS should have brought in and said, actually, you know, we've seen this on the market, we need to be implementing this, you know, for free to everybody. Yeah, exactly, Mark. And, and it's really interesting as well that, um, you know, for example, you can incentivize people by, you know, slight reductions in the cost of gym membership. Well, why doesn't the government do some incentivizing with slight reductions in the cost of the NI contribution to citizens who engage and give their data? Because I'm really interested in the way in which tax is always used as a stick, but never a carrot. So you don't see them ever slashing tax for people who behave well. You always see them increasing tax for people who behave badly. Um, and you know, I do think that they need to think carefully about how they use the tax system because we are so overtaxed in this country uh, to, to incentivize people to do the right thing. I mean, I've spoken honestly and open about this and my sister probably doesn't even listen. No, she does. She's, she's family. So... <laughs> Charlotte, I'm sorry for saying this, but my sister's had three kids on the NHS. I, I'm not going to have children. You know, I've, I very rarely go to the doctor. I very rarely use any health services, and I very rarely, at present, use any social care services. And yet I pay the same tax as a lot of other people. And I, I do believe, and I know there's the concern that actually if we did this, it would put people off or encourage people not to use health services. But there has to be a sort of reward scheme for people who don't overtax the system and go, look, you know, you've paid all of this tax in and you've not accessed these services. We know you've paid for everyone else, but here's a bit of an incentive back. You know, here's a little bit back for the how, how you're using the system because you're using it correctly. Yes, I know we need to safeguard those who would then go, oh, well, I'm not going to go to the doctors because I'll get money for it. And that's where like a daily logging app would come in. We could check vitals and stuff, but there has to be something. 
Well, yeah, but also, Adam, if somebody wants to be stupid enough to say, I'm not going to go to the doctor, that's the decision they've made, and they need to be accountable and responsible for that decision. Why we have to be nanny-stating people constantly? You know, the bottom line is, if people make wrong choices, and I've made loads of them in my life, <laughs> like consumption of alcohol, etc., if you make wrong choices, you have consequences, and people need to understand that. So <clears throat> I do think we are... We're in a position as well where there's so much um, fear, which is all media and politician induced about, oh, they're all trying to privatise the NHS. What I would do is say to people, if you want to go for a private solution, you're quite happy to do it. We'll incentivise you to do it. And then we'll deliver a Rolls Royce service for those who can't or won't. So you're taking pressure off. And in fact, we're seeing it happen more and more. So everybody now seems to have the uh, you know, virtual GP in their phone and quite happy to pay for a consultation. Well, why shouldn't we encourage that rather than decry it? No, absolutely. It just goes back to, you know, got to think of uh, differently, haven't we? Got to think outside the box that we're, we're so used to being in. But So Care England has been great for giving organisations a voice within government. What are your plans for the next year, both for Care England and for yourself? What do you hope to achieve? Well, I think from Caringler's point of view, what we're hoping to achieve is to start having influence on the manifestos. The manifestos are starting to be developed now. And what we need to have are some really clear asks. At the last election, we presented our own manifesto and we'll be doing exactly the same at this election so that people are clear about what we are asking them to deliver as politicians. We hope that it will be a, a manifesto that is absolutely delivered by our members. So we'll be asking them what they think so that we're really clear that the things we come up with are coming from the bottom up, not from the top down. I think what I'd like to do personally is engage in a much more creative dialogue with uh, critical decision makers at a local and regional as well as a national level. So I want to see some influencing it at the ICS level, I want to see it at the local authority level, I want to see it at the national level as well. So I think there are some really big asks that we have in relation to that. I also want to see the sector embracing technology more and certainly in the next year we have done quite a lot of work on, on technology but we will be upscaling that so that we're giving our members some potential ways in which technology can improve outcomes to people and deliver efficiencies for their organisations. So I think we, we need to do quite a bit of that. Um, I'm also hoping that the Skills for Care review of the um, qualifications leads to something which is very tangible in terms of a clear skills and competency framework, a very clear career pathway. We need to also make it much easier for people to and develop their career, perhaps step back a bit to go into education or have families or whatever, and then go back into social care. I think we should also be much clearer, and I hope that this year we'll be more focused on uh, looking at the workforce challenges from a perspective of saying, how do we get different people who weren't attracted to social care into our sector? So I want to see perhaps early retired people coming in. I want to see people who might be doing uh, education coming in. And partly that will require us as a sector to be much more flexible in the way in which we develop our approach to work. Um, and we had a bit of the potential to do that during COVID, and we need to build on our experiences there. 
But of course, the other thing is logistically, that is often more difficult for organizations, but that's where technology can really pay its dividend. I want technology to be doing rotoring. I want people to be creating their own bank of workers who can slip in and do shifts when people can't. So there are ways in which we should be embracing both technology and new approaches to workforce as part of meeting the workforce challenge. No, I think they're all really good goals and good that you've got such a clear vision. And I think just touching on that around kind of what you want to see happen within within social care and for organisations is that cross-learning from what other sectors are doing. And okay, a lot of that we won't be able to do because of it's the shifts and the road. But, you know, companies like Amazon are, are doing things like that. And actually, how are they doing it? What tech are they using? What methods are they using? And how can we implement that into social care? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I gave a speech recently at a really interesting event where they had the um, director of workforce and people at Sainsbury's, the owner and founder of Drake and Morgan, a large firm who do a lot of hospitality, and myself. And we were talking about some of the common challenges we faced around workforce, but swapping ideas about how we might be able to work more effectively to make sure that we have the workforce that's fit for purpose in the future, that allows us to deliver flexible approaches to uh, people who use services, <coughs> but also recognizes and rewards the competency and skills of those people. So I think one of the other <coughs> takeaways from that event for me was, don't only look to the care sector for solutions, let's look very broadly. And the broader we look, the more potential there is for us to find common solutions. So true. And, it, you know, everyone just needs to remember, just because we've always done it this way doesn't mean it's right or the best way to do it. And Mark and I often talk about flexibility. You know, you've got people who are cleaners, say, in the morning because five to nine is the only time that they can work. Create a five to nine shift in your care room or in your care. So you'll attract them. Create a shift that's uh, able for, for single parents who've got children at school. You'll attract them. You'll make it available to them. We're already cutting off a good portion of people who want to work in care because we're so rigid with the patterns that we work with. It's difficult. It's not going to be easy, but the solutions are never easy. If the solutions are easy, we'd be doing them now. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but, you know, Adam, I think one of the things we've got now that we never had in the past was the access to technology. And that's going to be the game changer because people are going to be able to communicate effectively. They're going to be able to develop different shift patterns. They're going to be able to create situations where people can cover for one another <coughs> because there's that instant way of communicating. So in the past, we had really difficult problems we've got problems now but we've got some solutions that weren't available to us in the past mm -hmm. and we've got to grasp them and we've got to think of a 21st century not a 19th and 20th century approach to delivering care i think some of the things people can do right now i think you know when it comes to how we engage with our employees and how we value them and i follow um Timpson CEO James Timpson some of the things that they do for their employees even I want to go and work for him like <laughs> you know they you can tell just from his posts and kind of what they share that they really value the workforce that they have I think Steve Bartlett from Dragon's Den somebody else that shares a lot of leadership tips and bits and pieces that actually we could easily implement into, into our services and transform the way that actually we engage with staff and we value staff and the workforce but 
I suppose, though, Mark, there is also that idea of culture. So it's easy for someone to see something on social media and go, I'm going to go do that with my staff. But if you don't believe it and it's not part of your blood and it's not part of your system, you can implement everything you bloody want to. Unless you believe it, it's never going to stick. Oh, yeah. Never it's not your yeah. You know, so I just for employees out there who suggest these things and the managers introduce them and nothing ever changes, it's because you need a new leadership mindset within your organization. No, and that's a culture reset. No, exactly. And it's about culture and values, and that's where it all starts. And that's why I really like the idea of recruitment on values because we can train people with skills and competencies. But if we recruit them on values, then you're absolutely clear that they've got the values of social care as the foundation of everything that they do. And also, the other thing that I've found in my career is the more open you are to people coming up with ideas, the better it is. Because, you know, nobody at the top of an organisation has the monopoly on good ideas. Uh, you know, people who are at the front line often think, well, why are we doing it that way? We could do it this way. And the more you're open to that, the more effective you'll be. But also the more you'll have a workforce that feels valued and listened to. And that is so important. And we saw that uh, during COVID. We saw examples of people who just worked so hard and gave so much. And then, you know, I, I was talking to a care home manager who had been literally in the care home for about two months during COVID. And she said to me, oh, and the owner took my husband and I out for a really lovely meal and said thank you for everything I'd done and she was so pleased to have been recognized and that was so important it was such a little thing but it made such a difference yeah. absolutely I think saying thank you just goes such a long way doesn't it and I think because we don't say it often enough it's not to the two words that we we say but no. final question from me Martin <coughs> Is there a message that you want to give to your members as the final final closing word before Adam closes us out? Yeah, my advice to my members is keep in contact with us. If you think we're doing things that you don't like, tell us. If you think we do need to do more of the things that we're doing, tell us. If you think there are parts of the agenda we haven't engaged with and we should, tell us. The best associations are the ones who are in communication with their members and responding to their members. I think we do a lot of that, but I think you can never do too much of it. So, uh, and, and also, I would say to members, connect with other Care England members, share your challenges, because there will be people out there that have been through the same process who can give you good advice on how to, to deliver an outcome on, on that issue. So talk to us, talk to each other, and hold fast to a vision for social care. And then I think we have a very bright future. I mean, there we go. I want to become a Care England member myself now just by hearing that. I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I think we've covered a myriad of topics. And if anyone's listened to this, I'm sure all you need to do is say, Alexa, uh, subscribe to the Caring View podcast. <coughs> I'm sure that would, that would work. I've just done it for you. Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Um, thank you for for giving you uh, for giving us uh, your time and our listeners um, your time as well. And thank you for all the work that you're continuing to do for the world of social care and everyone in it. I think it's incredible. Um, but thank you, Mark, and thank you, Adam, for doing these podcasts because I think it's a great opportunity to get the messages of social care across. Thank you so much. This has been The Caring View. Um, this is the last episode of Series 4. Series 5 
is currently being recorded and then series six will be following in that shortly but as always we're live every single tuesday over on our youtube channel you can find everything about us on www.thecaringview.co.uk and um, but until then uh, we will bid you adieu take care and thank you for listening we know the difficulties facing health and social care providers around the country when it comes to workforce and rotors which is why we're proud to have series four of our podcast sponsored by florence Florence connects care professionals with shifts across the healthcare sector. Their app lets you fill shifts instantly at great rates, so you can focus on providing outstanding care. All the links to Florence and their socials are going to be in each episode description of this podcast series, so why not go and check them out?